welcome to episode 10 of the Coriolis Effect. This episode is entitled, All are equal under the icons, some are more equal than others. I'm Matthew. And I'm Dave. And today we've got a action-packed episode for you. Uh, you think we might be running out of things to talk about, but no, uh, Matthew and I can talk about stuff forever. So today we're going to uh, have a brief chat about the world of gaming, as we usually do. A couple of things for us to talk about there. Exciting news. Lots of exciting news. Some exciting news in there, absolutely. Following on from that, I have a recorded piece about the Children of the Void that we talked about before, which follows on from the portal space discussion we had last time. Mm -hmm. Matthew wants to have a little chat about the ARC concept from Mutant Year Zero and how that might apply to Coriolis, potentially which uh, should be really interesting. We haven't really thought about it too much, but let's just see see what we come up with. Following that, I did my uh, my game The Thing the other day, which uh, I will give a little rundown on about how that happened and how that worked out. And then we've got an uh, update from uh, Matthew on the Mukafar campaign, followed by... Yeah, your special birthday episode of the Mukafar campaign. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which almost ended very badly indeed. Which we'll, <laughs> oh we can, yes, which we can go into a little bit later on. And then Matt's going to talk a little bit about the uh, the background to Tony's character from that campaign as a Latif police officer from from Dabaran. And then finally, Spectral Corsair. We've run another Spectral Corsair game, so I shall update on that at the end of the episode. And I think that's what we've got lined up for today. Have I missed anything, Matthew? No, I think, uh, as you said, it's action-packed. We've got a, a, a lot to talk about, so I, best we, I, I guess we better get started. Well, let's, let's crack on. Well, the, actually, the first thing I want to say, which I hope will go some way to, to keeping you happy, Matthew, is that <laughs> I have now watched the first series of Stranger Things. Yay! <laughs> and it was really good. I really enjoyed it. I recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. I love the uh, uh, I love the reminiscent, uh, nostalgic kids playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, although I'm oh, sure, God, yes, I'm sure we weren't ever as nerdy as they were. Uh, Obviously we not. No, no. We, we were, much were we were the cool Dungeons and Dragons players. <laughs> I think you'll find. Uh, but it was great. I really enjoyed it. Even though there was one or two things that were a bit predictable, but it was excellent. Really good. I recommend it. So anyway, Matthew, I've watched it now. So excellent. So I can shut up, up about it now. <laughs> yes. Until Stranger Things 2 arrives on our screens. Well, I will watch that, so you don't need to badger me about it. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, that is great news. and But there's even more exciting news, isn't there? There is. So we are definitely going to Dragon Meet in December now. We were delighted to receive an invitation from a fellow podcaster, Callum, from the uh, released podcast, to come along as official participants in the podcast zone. And we will both be there. So really looking forward to that. I mean, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm not quite sure what it's going to involve, but we'll find out in the next few weeks, I expect. Yeah, there's going to be lots of other podcasters there uh, from obviously mostly British podcasts, of course, because it's a London-based convention. So I, at the very worst, we'll all be interviewing each other. But I, I think we've got <laughs> plans to, to do short little actual plays. So we might try and work out something that Dave and I can run for, well, for fellow podcasters and other participants that we can then broadcast later on in our, in future episodes. Absolutely. And I'm still hoping that we can get one or two interviews. I'm hoping Modifius, after the success of 
Stranger Things. Sorry, not Stranger Things. Sorry, I'll shut up about Stranger Things. <laughs> you are obsessed. obsessed. You're obsessed loop. by that. Uh, at, at the at the Ennies at Gen Con, uh, they might Modifius might pay for some of our Swedish game designers to come over, and if they do, we're sure to try and grab them for an interview. Most definitely, yeah. And we had originally put ourselves forward to run uh, a couple of game sessions on the day. Haven't heard back about those yet. Not sure how they'll fit in with the podcast zone. But if we can manage yeah. both, great. If we can't, then think you know the podcast zone is where we'll be found on the day. Exactly. I I've, I think you're right. I, we might have to we might have to pull out of running the games. They take. Well, let's see. Let's see. Yeah. If we if we can manage it, then then great. But talking about Tales of the Loop and some excellent stuff that, you know, the awards that that won, I understand that we have another Kickstarter on the books. Yes. So it, today we're recording this on Thursday and today... In, 21st of September. In I think about an hour and 11 minutes. So that's how long we've got to record, Dave, because I want to be the first on there. <laughs> uh, a Kickstarter will go live from our friends at Free Elegan for a fantasy game based on the, what I think is getting to be commonly called the Year Zero engine. The same mechanics as Coriolis, as Mutant Year Zero, and as Tales from the Loop. Yep. It's they've described it as an old school fantasy game and it's called Forbidden Lands. And you know, I'm quite excited about this. Yeah, I had a look at it. Um yeah, I haven't seen much information about it yet, but the the stuff that I've read online and using again this game engine that I really, really like, uh, sounds really good. And then you were telling me a bit, Matthew, about the the way they're going to produce the maps for it and that you can add stickers or elements to it that will build your own very unique map of the valley that's in question? Yeah, according to Enworld, who've seen a sort of preview version of it, the box set will feel very old school. There'll be a map in there of the valley that will, will, I guess, be the setting for the first campaign. Uh, I understand it's double-sided, same map on on both sides, so that you can run two versions of the same campaign (laughs) and have them be different for each group of players. Uh, I also understand it's going to come with stickers that will allow you to put various landmarks that your players discover as they effectively hex crawl around the map exploring in different places, depending on where individual parties discover it. And also there's the idea that they will go out, find amazing things and bring them back to a home base of some sort Mm. and steadily build the, the town or village that they live in at the same time as going off adventuring. You know what this feels like to me? That it's been designed by people who've gamed and who've played games. So just the idea that you've got a map that is uh, changeable, you can build it to your own your own specifications, but then you've double-sided, so you might run two campaigns. It's just so many yeah. games feel like they're written by someone who's never, ever seen a game in their life. Uh, <laughs> but this really feels like it's it's a game designed by gamers for gamers, which sounds really good. Yeah, and you know, to be honest, I think it might be a game designed by gamers of our generation that's touching yeah. even um, better. Well, even better. You, you talked about the nostalgia for D anD D in the old way on uh, on Stranger Things, and yeah, I think this is about playing games in the way that we did when we were twelve and young teenagers, 
uh, but we just don't have the time for now. You know, remember we used to draw out those really detailed maps of our adventuring lands, and that's not something I can use to prep a game with now. And the no. fact that somebody else has done it for me, but it will still be my own game, that sounds quite exciting. So I think that's I might good. be kicking yeah. in for this. Yeah, oh, I fully expect I will be, yeah. I'm a bit of a compulsive kickstart backer now, certainly for free league games. <laughs> yes well i've been i i, I you know i i'm being very um oh restrained on free league and games i i mm. didn't kick in on tales from the loop because i'd already bought i would have done i think if i hadn't already bought bubblegum shoe to play stranger things in and i haven't uh you know you i know you've run all the mutant year zero games or, or you've got all the mutant year zero games yeah. but because i haven't joined you in that campaign i haven't invested any of those but i think i i've been kind of spurning fantasy apart from your excellent um fantasy campaigns as a player i haven't really felt the need to run one but no. i think this is very tempting and you're right the mutant year zero system is so intuitive and easy to play i'm i'm really happy to to think about dming something like this excellent that sounds good to me dming oh, crikey i'm, I'm getting really <laughs> retro here. Yeah. gming i should say not, not until we've had a good run of uh, coriolis obviously <laughs> no no don't worry we'll get coriolis out of the way first we've got plenty to talk about there but talking about investing money on stuff i, I spent a bit, a bit of money on the campaign cartographer and i just wanted to to say a couple of things i haven't really had much chance to dive into it yet so much other stuff going on but we had on g plus a fabulous rendition of samar's hammam by yes. david by david reichgeld TSU, which is absolutely brilliant. It really evokes uh, exactly what we want. And it looks great. It's really, really professionally done. And that's really inspired me now to get off my lazy backside, get into Campaign Cartographer and start putting together some maps of my own, which I've been meaning to do, but haven't quite got round to. You know, this is also our 10th podcast. So, whoa, well done, us. Hooray! 10th anniversary. 10th epiversary. Epiversary. That doesn't sound great, does it? (laughs) No. Um, uh, achievement unlocked, I think, for us. Yes. You know, ten episodes. <laughs> which I, no, we, we, yeah, that, that, I'm sure many podcasts don't last this long. No, well, that, um, that slightly a slight digression about <laughs> life achievements unlocked. You remember when we went to the for your fiftieth and my brother's fiftieth? We went to the Z events zombie event. Oh, that was very splendid. Yeah, that was splendid. But it, that, <laughs> that achievement unlocked thing reminds me of. When we broke up into groups of five, I was in a group with my sons and Tony and we we killed a zombie. And at the time we were looking for the things that you had to find to help your way. Oh, yes. We had to be collecting bottles of stuff. Yeah. And things. Yeah. Anyway, we were we had armfuls of these things and we killed this zombie. This zombie had a satchel over his shoulder. So Morgan <laughs> took it off him. And I just remember really clearly he stood up with a great big grin on his face saying, life achievement unlocked, loot a zombie. <laughs> oh, he didn't I tell thought me it was that. brilliant <laughs> brilliant <laughs> so, uh, yeah anyway. our, our group didn't find any of those you'd obviously were you know a few steps ahead of us and got every single one of those bloody bottles but um, we got quite a few of them yeah so we didn't need oh, a satchel <laughs> <laughs> anyway i digress but uh, yeah, i want to say great big thanks to david for producing that fabulous map you've inspired me to get on and do some of my own and our 10th podcast so it's kind of like a gift you know, yeah. a gift for us for our 10th podcast, which I'm really In fact, with. I've got a rather crazy idea, which I'll tell you now. I just wondered whether we ought to print up a few copies of that map with some of the notes from Sam Man on the back and hand them out for free at, um, at, at DragonCon in the podcast zone. 
I think that's an excellent idea if uh, if David Rygill doesn't mind. I, I, well, he, 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 did, he, said, he did say use it any way you want. So yeah. obviously we'll give him full credit on the, Absolutely. On the text. But, Completely. Uh, I think uh, that would be That's a great, a great idea. idea. It is excellent. Cool. Cool. Is that all our news, I think? I think it is for now, isn't it? Let's move on to the, the people of the void. So I, I decided some time ago to look at some additional, what I thought then would be icon talents. And we then got into the discussion about portal space and then the discussion about those festival days between the the triads of the Mm. year, where actually, if you're born on one of those days, you're not under any of the icons, potentially. So I I had a little think about that. And I've come up with some thoughts, which... Which I'm eager to hear. Yeah, let's do that. The elders of the Church of the Icons are learned and wise. They understand the icons. They understand their holy cycles and rhythms and have set the calendar to their divine pattern. Each year, or Coriolis Cycle, or CC, is divided into nine equal segments, each infused and blessed with one icon's influence and power. These nine segments, according to the Church of the Icons, are collated into three triads, between each of which is one day, one special day, the Void Day, where all the people celebrate the coming of the time of the icons that rule the next triad. These days, of which there are three in each cycle, are days of joyful feasting, of solemn prayer and reflection, and thanksgiving for all the people of the Third Horizon, who know the icons are there, are watching, and are at hand to help and protect them. The birth of a child is a wondrous thing, and feeling the presence of the protective hand of the icon under whom the child is born is both an honour and a delight. To know the messenger is overseeing the journey of your life, to know the deckhand keeps the dark at bay, to know the merchant blesses your endeavours, is to know the gods are with you, is to know you are blessed, is to know your place in the third horizon. But not all are born within the protective embrace of an icon. Those born on the festival of void days, the so-called void children, have no icon to protect them, have no connection to a protective divinity. Some see this as a curse, for what could the lack of an icon be other than a curse? But others see it as a blessing, for surely the icons wouldn't disown these people. So surely, These people are protected by all the icons, rather than just one of them. But either cursed or especially blessed, these people can be shunned by many first come, although Zenithians tend to take a more pragmatic, so what, view. But even though the Church of the Icons preaches tolerance and inclusion, many among the first come take a different view. The Order of the Pariah see void children as abominations, and immediately put these children to death. Perhaps it is pertinent that recorded void childbirths in Zalos are at a much lower rate than one would expect, but births on days either side are suspiciously high. The Draconites shun these children, and those born on these days are seen as cursed and to be avoided. They are branded with fire at the age of ten, so all can identify them at a glance. But whether the icons are turning their gaze away from these children of the void, or are all taking a collective interest or taking their turn to watch over them, these people hold a unique place and a unique insight into the dark between the stars. 
This is reflected in the six void talents available to characters who are born on one of these days. During character creation, a roll of 66 on the Your Icon table on page 25 means you are a void child, and get to roll randomly on the talents below. 1. Icon Sight You are one with the dimensions of portal space, and its mysticisms do not have an adverse effect on you. You are not seen as prey to the spirits and beasts while in portal space, and they do not act aggressively towards you. In effect, you can traverse portal space whilst awake, once per scenario. This costs one darkness point for every eight hours or part thereof in portal space. 2. Darkened Heart You are not befeared of the beasts from the dark. You gain plus one dice for all rolls against Darkbound and Dark Morphs, but not Jinn and Spirits, increasing to plus two dice for all rolls to resist effects or special attacks they may make against you. Costs one darkness point per Darkbound or Dark Morph encountered. 3. Spirit Walker You can see through the Veil of Illusions projected by Spirits and Genie. At the cost of one darkness point, you see through the transformed Jinns or Afrit's human form and recognise its true form in nature. Or, you recognise when a person is suffering from a Hazared's possession. 4. Lost in the Void Once per scenario, you can call upon the icons to lay a shroud upon you that hides you from the prying eyes of others. You can move at walking pace and remain under the shroud, but running or any action against another will reveal you. You can make a surprise attack from behind this mystical shroud, but the icons may take a dim view of using this gift in this way. The shroud lasts for a number of turns, equal to the character's wits plus empathy. This costs one darkness point, with an additional plus one darkness point if a surprise attack is made. 5. Icon's Gift At a cost of one darkness point, and once per scenario, you can call upon the icons and they will gift you with a mystical power for a one-shot immediate use with the equivalent of Mystic Power's skill of 3, plus the PC's Empathy. Or if the character already has the Mystic Power's skill, they get plus 3 dice to the roll. Two powers are rolled randomly, and one must be used within 5 turns. 6. Master in the Dark You have seen beyond the veil and understand from where the Dark Morph beasts have crawled. You can soothe or become an angered Dark Morph, or otherwise divert its attention or pique its curiosity. For the cost of one darkness point, you can try to calm a dark morph. Make an empathy or mystic powers roll with plus one success. The dark morph is calmed for a number of turns equal to successes rolled, and will not attack the PC or anyone under her protection. I'm loving that. Dave, uh, I really like that. Uh, well, for, for a start, I like the uh, reverence with which you speak of the Church of the Icons and their <laughs> all-seeing wisdom. Um, I'm, I'm liking the, the whole it's concept. It's challengeable. You can challenge that all-seeing wisdom, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> as with everything, what I, what I really love about the, the fluff for Coriolis is everything has got an obverse in it. So, you know, the, the Zelosians are bloodthirsty killers and also the, the Samaritans. There's, you know, in, in almost everything that they describe in the books, there's some example of where it's not true. So uh, 
So yeah, maybe all-seeing wisdom, but maybe you're a <laughs> challengeable all-seeing wisdom. I, I like those talents. as Well, I like most of the talents as well. Now, the very first one, I think, is one that I take a bit of an issue with. The icon site one. I always um, have to put something in for you to take issue with, don't I, Matt? Well, exactly. You know, <laughs> I, you're not perfect, David. And I just have to remind you that every single time we, we, we speak on something that you've done. You, you, just be thankful if you're not, you're not one of my kids. I, I, I'm very <laughs> thankful I'm not one of your kids. <laughs> They'll uh, bring me a, a, a lovely, lovely uh, picture of a family and I'll say, yeah, but you haven't got the proportions quite right. <laughs> no, I'm not that mean. I mean, how creepy is that? Oh, so, no, I really like, I, yeah, I like the Lost in the Void talent. I like the Master of the Dark talent. The one that I think I'm slightly nervous on is the icon sight talent, which I know mm. is one of the first that we talked about because, um, well, because of adventures in your campaign and our discussion about um, void space uh, and the dark between the stars. And yeah, I just, my only criticism is that I wonder whether that's almost a one use power that, yeah, it's great to do an adventure a bit like the one that we did um where you were stuck for some hours in portal space but that would get you know pretty boring if every scenario all the rest of the players had to hang around while the guy who was awake in void space did his thing what yeah. do you think about that a couple of things i guess i mean i for a long time i'd had the idea for for this talent about well what you know could there be somebody who could go through portal space without any ill effects whatsoever i think you are you're right in that sense so for me, if the, if the players are going to go into portal space in the way that we did in, um, uh, what was the name of the episode? A, an, it's uh, an incredibly a, long named episode that I can't remember now. A known truth is better than an unknown, something like that. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, we can. <laughs> everyone listening knows what we're talking about. Anyway, I would hope. In the actual play is what we should say in yes the three episodes of the actual play which you can go back and listen to if this is your first episode of the coriolis effect three of yes. the previous episodes were actual plays and a great little adventure episodes five seven and nine for reference brilliant uh, anyway what was i going to say uh, i was i was criticizing your icon site for being a bit of a yeah so uh, a the great talent the great thing about that episode that, that scenario was the fact that you were in portal space and it was dangerous um, mm. Whereas this talent would allow, allow you to be in portal space, and it's not dangerous. In my uh, in the Spectral Corsair campaign, we gave this talent to Dean's character to help introduce him because he had to go through portal space awake. Yeah, it's like you say, it's a bit of a one shot thing. I'm not sure what the future sort of utility of it as a talent is, but there are quite a few talents out there that you don't use very often anyway. But also, I think these are listed here for NPCs to use as well as players. And it might give you, as a GM, an interesting little scenario idea where you've got a stowaway or someone being difficult or, or, or hostile on board the ship who actually can go through portal space uh, without suffering any ill effects. But I take the point. I mean, these six talents here, and I'd like to say, because it's episode 10, it's not talent of the week, it's talents of the week yes yes special bonus six extra talents for this <laughs> I, i've deliberately drafted them quite uh thinly and short simply because i didn't want to spend hours and hours and hours reading through lots of talents that might get quite boring hmm. so uh, you know for people listening feel free to 
to have a look at them and amend them and change them. Uh, obviously, with all of the stuff that we offer, it's there entirely as a prototype for you to do with what you please. You know, I think also for me, a couple of them, I still have my own doubts about. So the one in which you are able to almost control, not quite control a dark morph, but soothe or become one. That's quite powerful, potentially. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not entirely sure how that will play out in a game. Uh, and it might in one day, if we did this again with a bit more thought and time, some of these might change. Now, you see, the reason I quite like that one is because I feel that's a very cinematic moment. Mm. Uh, but you're right. If that happens every time they meet a dark morph, then that that then slightly disempowers the, the horror aspect of, of Coriolis, doesn't it? Exactly. And I also, I mean, I, I didn't get into in the text there about whether damage to the dark morph would break the break the spell on them or mm. whether they were kind of enthralled regardless of of kind of what happened i think in the way the way it worked in the game it, it, it's kind of a a last minute stop where you know the character with this talent is able to hold off the dark morph as the exactly, others are escaping yeah. I, I and when i talk of that cinematic moment that's kind of yeah. what I'm, I'm talking about but if it starts becoming a way that uh an enterprising team starts farming dark morphs and selling their meat <laughs> then <laughs> Yeah, we possibly don't want to go there, do we? I agree. No, absolutely. I did have another thought with this one. Going back, I don't know how many episodes where we had this discussion about second tier talents. Mm. You could have you could have a second tier talent to this one, which actually allows you to control the Dark Morph for a short while. But yeah. I think that would p- probably be something I would want to reserve for non-player characters uh, mm. as a you know a baddie who's got a Dark Morph, a tame Dark Morph that can help him and 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 do bad things. But again, I take your point. A lot of the stuff we're doing here that we're digging into, and and rightly so, because it's interesting and it is there to be dug into, can run the risk of demystifying some of the game, some of the background, some of the horror that we yeah. that is a really really important part of the context of the game. But you make a very important point, of course, that these are great things to throw at the players, not as player talents necessarily, yeah. but as talents that some of the antagonists might have. Yes, that will really spook them. So. So yeah, I I can see using pretty much all these potentially cool. as as talents that they come across. And what are the chances of a player rolling sixty six anyway? I mean, I know if we're saying that each cycle is uh, thirty days, each segment is thirty days. Uh, that makes the year, you know, two hundred and seventy days long. So it's mm-hmm. only one in it's about one in ninety chance of being born on that day. Yeah. So I was trying to reflect reflect that. It might be more around, this is the kind of thing that a player would discuss with the GM in character creation. And rather than rolling it, you'd choose to play a character that's a, a void child. Yeah, which is kind of what happened, of course. That's why you created the void child, isn't it? That um, you had that player you wanted to join mid Absolute. space. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yep. Cool. Excellent. Well, yeah, I, I, I like all of that, I have to say. Um, and while we're thinking of new ways of doing things, I want to pick your brains <laughs> and your experience and expertise with Mutant Year Zero. Feel free. Pick away. A few weeks ago, I joined a game of a game I hadn't really heard much of or played about or, 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 or read about beforehand. But it was a very enjoyable game called Blades in the Dark, which, like so many games now, I think was kickstarted last year and lots of people received their physical rewards 
a couple of months ago when we were very keen to play. And a guy from my local game shop just put out a public tryout Blades in the Dark invitation one Sunday. Okay, and cool. I went to join it. Bunch of lovely people. Blades in the Dark is a great little system. It feels a bit like uh, Powered by the Apocalypse system, but um, but it isn't. Uh, it's It may be inspired by that in certain ways, but the dice mechanic is subtly but fundamentally different. It's good fun. Uh, I won't bore you with the campaign, but we or with the whole adventure but within the space of the afternoon or extended afternoon i think we started about 11 o'clock we were able to create our characters very quickly the setting is all provided but our place in the setting all came together who the good guys were and the bad guys all came together and then we had an adventure but what was really interesting uh, when we, we were quite keen to do this as though we were running a campaign. So at the end of the adventure, we also did the, if you like, the paperwork bit or the downtime right, yeah. bit of the game. And that was very interesting. And I, I thought it reminded me of Mutant Year Zero in a way, in that at the beginning of the game, you you set up what your home base is. And we're living in actually my character's aunt's uh, basement, effectively. Okay. Uh, but... With the with the money that you've earned during the game, which is kind of abstracted out to be coin, so you get one or two points of coin from your adventure, and you've got various things you need to spend it on. You've got to keep your allies sweet. You might want to pay off your enemies, or you might want to invest in your base. There's also various ways in which you can enhance your experience checks, so you can roll your own experience, but you might want to spend coin on improving your own experience. So lots of things to do, if you like, between sessions. Mm. And that reminded me of what you said about Mutant Year Zero, that uh, I haven't played in your campaign, but we discussed it when you were first proposing it, That, and I understand that all the characters there have some sort of home base, and yes. quite apart from going out to discover stuff, and have adventures there's also a downtime phase where you decide what your project is on your base and you're trying to rebuild your i think we were looking at a hydroelectric dam or something like that and that's right all of that working and that was really interesting and it made me suddenly think of a an issue that i think i've had with coriolis since i first read it but hadn't really put into words (laughs) and that's the ship now we talk very positively about how when you generate your your team of of players you also get a chance to craft your own ship but that ship creation although it's very simple and friendly system to use and it involves a lot less maths than say building ships in traveler (laughs) traveler yeah it does still end up with what happens in traveler in that you get a ship but you also get a deal of debt and Your campaign, broadly speaking, is about paying off that debt. So the only the only thing you can spend your money on, in a way, uh, at the end of a campaign is, or at the end of an adventure is, well, how much money can we pay off towards our ship to make sure that we're not indebted? Yes, you can add modules to it if you've if you've been sensible and not necessarily added all the modules to your ship that you that it can cope with at the beginning of the campaign. Then you can spend money that you've earned on extra modules. So you can upgrade the ship in that way. But it all felt to me very much like Traveller, which 
let me remind you, is a system that was invented in 1977. <laughs> so I was wondering whether we could think about, you could tell me a bit about, from a Game Master's point of view, the Mutant Year Zero system, and we could think about how that might apply to Coriolis in a slightly more modern way than something that feels like it came from the 70s. It's really interesting because when you first mentioned this just the other day, I I had a bit of a flashback to when I was kickstarting for Coriolis. And the feel at the time was that you know, it, this was, this might be a bit, a bit simplistic, but sort of mutant year zero in space. Yeah. And, you know, your ship is almost another character is a very integral part of, of, of the game. And as it is, but I do remember, uh, you know, flashing back to, to that moment thinking, oh, great. So, we've, you know, the ship is effectively going to be the Ark. How cool. Mm. And then in all the excitement of getting the game and playing the game and learning about the game, I sort of forgot that moment until mm. you mentioned until you mentioned it. And now I've spoiled the whole game for you. And you never want to play it again. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm off. <laughs> uh, no, not quite. But it's it's a really good point. Back in the past, back in the day, the thing that frequently was a problem for dungeon masters, you know, referees, games masters, whatever you want to call them, was mm. getting your group of characters together in the first scenario and trying to find a really good way where this group of strangers gets together and becomes best buddies in the space of about 30 minutes. Or at least, if not best buddies, all working towards some sort of common objective. Absolutely, yeah. Some common objective that is sufficiently important to each of them for them not to say why the hell am I bothering doing this this is nothing you know my character wouldn't yeah. bother and that was a real a real problem particularly when you had good role players who would have an idea of their character and say well why do I want to go and search that forest for the lost girl when I hate that family and I you know I'm I'd rather do something else mm. and I think the the great thing about Mutant Year Zero and the Ark and Songs of Ice and Fire is another good one. And the yes, the, with the, the, house, the household, yeah, is that it forces and creates collaborative character generation right at the start. Mm. And Coriolis does do that uh, in the way that you build your ship and all the rest of it, anyway. But it, like you say, it misses out on the other part, which is the more you know, how do you develop your ship other than by saving money, paying off the mortgage, and then if you're able to save enough money, adding some new feature to the ship or new module to the ship that makes it a bit better so in, in mutant year zero the arc is it's kind of like a mini game almost within a game mm, exactly yeah and it's really it works really well so at the beginning of each scenario the game recommends that you you get your players together and the community in the arc come together to decide what projects they want to do next and ultimately it's really down to the players but mm. That sort of arc assembly idea allows you as the GM to push them in a certain direction if there's a certain development for the arc that you think is important or or necessary in some scenario terms or narrative terms. But otherwise, you leave it up to the players to decide. And they look through the book and you know, the, they see what values they've got for the arc already. So the arc will be measured under four different values. One is food supply. One is culture. One is technology and one is warfare, which, as the name suggests, you know, food supply is about how, you know, how much scrabbling around to eat do you have to yeah. do. Culture is around, includes things like sort of the political culture and the moral culture. So you use culture points to do things like 
by a slave market, for example. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things. Technology, fairly obvious. Warfare, again, fairly obvious. It's how effective your your arc is when it's got to fight, either to you know defend itself or or uh, you know in a more aggressive way. And you can then choose projects that will then add bonuses to those particular scores, and then yeah. you'll roll the players will roll the dice, the GM will roll the dice, and that will be how much sort of work or effort they're able to put into finishing that particular project. And you can have more than one. So in the game, the last game that I ran, yeah, you're absolutely right. They had a hydroelectric dam, or yeah, a disused one, obviously a broken one, as their arc. And they then went through and created things like stables, so they're able to get around a bit more quickly. They got themselves a slave market, a water wheel, which is uh, making use of the water that was still flowing through some of the pipes. Those kind of things. What actually happened in that campaign was they didn't invest anything in warfare. So when the Ark was attacked, it was very seriously damaged. I mean, they mm-hmm. managed to repulse the uh, the attacking group, but it was badly damaged. So they'd they'd neglected to defend themselves whilst they'd gone for things like technology and food supply, and and you know rightly so, I guess in one sense. But and I think the guys loved it. I think the guys really enjoyed that. Well, let's let's pause there for a moment, Ben, because you mentioned a few things. I'm thinking, well, how does that apply to a ship, and how do how do things cert- certainly not apply to our ship? Yeah. So you know. Your ship and most of the ships, I imagine, that players have created are not great behemoths or um, uh, arc ships, for, uh, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, <laughs> no, with a community yeah. on board. So no. that first bit of saying, well, you know, how do we as players persuade the community to go for the thing that we want to do might not happen. But actually, I'm just thinking it could be, it could happen if you think about who is the ship's owner or your mortgage holder or whatever. Maybe there's a bit of a discussion that, you know, that could happen at the beginning of a game or some dice rolls made about what the improvements to the ship should be with, with a, with a, if you like, a, a, an outside factor of an owner or mortgage holder or whatever, having an influence. Certainly in the, the couple of campaigns that I've been involved with with Coriolis, the character generation, ship generation, we've, automatically assumed or gone to the default of making a traveler style ship a ship ship just big enough for the players we've got and no more and no less and maybe that's just us coming to it from our years of traveler experience but it doesn't give you it doesn't point you in a direction that you could do something you know markedly different so for example like you say having the big behemoth of a ship with mm-hmm. loads of NPCs on board, it doesn't it doesn't push you in that in that kind of direction. No, and I think if I've looked at it, if we look at what other people have said about the ships that their players have got on social media, then we're not particularly seeing anything different from that style of ship—a ship just big enough for the players. You know, yeah. I don't even see all that many class four ships that players have taken on. Everybody seems to be going for class three. Yes, and there's another thing though. You know, again, although we created the traveler style ships. In, in in the campaign I'm running, there's an interesting thing that we haven't really bottomed out about the fact that you were part of the design team and you'd built that ship, but it's a Zolossian ship from a Zolossian from the Kamaruk boatyards where where you were working as a an apprenticed uh, um, slave naval architect, I guess you'd call it, or yeah. spatial architect, and yet we've just adopted the fact that there is money on it. 
owing on it. And, you know, in my head, I think I've decided that maybe you're the guy who who owned you as an apprentice stroke slave has loaned you the money on the ship and he's the guy we're paying it back to. Yeah. But we never really developed that as a, <laughs> no. as a party. They were just giving in, money in a back way, every there's month. an interesting, you know, it's potentially one of the values that you might actually have a score by apart from sheer cash. That's, you know, that, that, that debtor, uh, oh no, you're the debtor. He's the debt I guess. Uh, anyway, the creditor. <laughs> the creditor. Yeah. He might have an influence on some of the missions that you might do because of your indebtedness to him. And there could be some sort of game value to that, which you could be working up or down like like you might do in, in, in Mutant Year Zero. It's difficult to get you know my head around the idea of what you would what values you would give to your ship that would replicate the food supply culture, technology and warfare in Coriolis, how that, mm. how, what, what values would you put on it? How would you then, uh, in terms of the mechanics of the game, one, influence those scores, and two, how would those scores then influence you? I, the thing I can't get my head around is how you could do that without effectively rewriting the whole arc chapter out of Mutant Year Zero into rules that would apply for a, a ship in Coriolis. Well, I think it would be a big project if, you know, I don't think there's any little things that one can feed in. No. Although, off the top of my head, I'm thinking, you know, here's an interesting thing. Uh, it, Coriolis was called, by its creators, Firefly in Space. In Firefly, Mal owned that ship. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, he owns it outright. It's not a very good ship. <laughs> Let's face it, it falls apart. I, I I can't remember. There's there's a lovely quote from Out of Gas, where the ship breaks down in space, for example. Yeah. Um, so there's a reliability value that we might that we might propose in this arc. Yes. Idea. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a bit where he says, um, "You, this is a ship will serve you till the day you die." And uh, so he says, "Because it's going to kill you." <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah, it's because it's a death trap. So he, yeah. So he's got this, um, you know, he's got this crappy old ship, and one would imagine if we had more than twelve or fourteen episodes, that we might have seen the crew steadily make that ship better. Indeed, you know, by the end of the Serenity movie, they'd stuck a gun on the top. Uh, they they rebuilt it on that on on the planet where Wash died. Sorry, spoilers, everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, so. So you know, there, you know, there could be ways to say, well, you could have debt, or you can have crappy ship, and so maybe, maybe the debt, rather than being actual a number, and have you know, actually, I need to um, check with you as a player what our kitty is at the moment, because I think you and I might have some different <laughs> perceptions about how much money you actually got left over at the end of the last adventure, but we won't do that here. But no. actually, that number is actually a really inconvenient, you know, big number of millions of credits maybe there was a simpler way of a more abstract way of saying your debt on the ship is five yes but your reliability is also five and yeah maybe you could have had a debt of one if you were prepared to take a reliability of one or something like that yeah and again you know there's i'm I'm painfully aware of the fact that you've got an engineer and a shipbuilder and i'm sure you're aching to have some way of saying okay i want to use my skills to improve the ship Yes, absolutely, and uh, I would have I would have done something around that at the end of the last scenario if uh, 
if I hadn't been so shocked by what happened. <laughs> which we'll come to later, but... Which we will. We'll come to which that later. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't got any answers now. I just kind of wanted to raise it as a topic. And maybe we can return to this topic in some future episode when we've thought it through. You know, maybe I'll have to borrow your Mutant Year Zero books and mm. see if I can come up with that. I think some form of abstraction for what is currently very real numbers might be the way to go. But um, I don't think that's a bad idea. On on the other hand, there's a bit of me that is quite liking the real numbers, even yeah. though we're a long way away from ever paying off the ship, as are the crew of uh, Spectre Corso, a long, long way of ever paying off the ship, almost so far that it's kind of inconceivable that they will ever pay off the ship because it just, you know, they owe, I don't know, 1.2 million or something. They're paying off 4,000 a month. That's going to be a it's going to be a long game of mortgages and debts or something. Yeah, but you, again, you see that you know that one point two million might might you know we might still have the cashy money that you get paid and that you can think of in terms of the the different burr, but there may it may translate into a ship value of debt of twelve or something like that. Yeah, an interesting yeah. Um, thought that just occurred to me in uh, the Song of Ice and Fire role playing game, the houses have a uh, a money statistic and as a gm of that game i found it really quite clunky and difficult to translate mm. that into cashy money or when you came across a chunk of cashy money translate that into yeah so when we got a chest full of gold that's you know 4000 gold pieces how does that translate into the gold value that your house has got and it doesn't translate very well. And, mm. and But that's not just a problem with the money stat, I think, because the other thing about um, the, the, house, the house generation and the house values across the statistics is you get your house, House Orca, tiny little house on an island that's, you know, I don't know, 30 miles across or something with values, some of them in the sort of 20s, 30s, 40s, where sort of the highest value you could get would be sort of 70 or 80. Mm-hmm. And then you get House Stark, which owns half of Westeros, with values only twenty or thirty above yours. So there was right, kind of a, yeah. there was kind of an exponential, really a sort of unexplained exponential increase in what each point of value meant the higher you went up. Yeah. If you were if you were going to make those stats between House Stark and House Orca actually stack up and mean anything, so that I found that really quite hard. And maybe wouldn't necessarily want to introduce something like that into into Coriolis. The other thought I did have was maybe we shouldn't muck about with the ship so much, but you could make um, an equivalent of the Ark by having something else. So, for example, it could be something like Haven in Firefly. Well, where... funny enough, I had that thought too. And in fact, Haven was the word I thought you could have. <laughs> yeah, well, that's your community. The uh, Shepherd Book would effectively be fulfilling the role of the elder in the arc mm-hmm. in mutant year zero and then that's your that's your safe base that's where you go and that's where you have your beginning of scenario project discussion and you could probably then just pretty much lift and drop mutant year zero arc rules to to, to that kind of thing or it could be a space station or it could mm. be yeah like the haven said, could be any sort of uh, uh yeah uh, it could be samar saman <laughs> Yes, exactly. Because, again, the other thing that occurred to me, now we've got, you've got my juices going on this one, was in every game, every game, just about every game that I run and most games where I play, you you want to find yourself 
a place to call home. So mm. in in our friend Andy's uh, White Wolf, the oh, I don't remember which one it was. No, it's when I I was playing the um, I was playing the Red Cap. Oh well, and that was everything. Yeah, <laughs> that, no, that yeah. was Andy's error in that one because I was yeah. a mage, you were a Red Cap. Uh, Andy G was a was a werewolf. Was a me? werewolf. Yeah, and we had a whole bunch of circus vampires there as well. That was it. Yeah, but basically the point I was making was in that we had a a hostel, mm. which which is actually based on the White Swan Pub in Pimlico. <laughs> if anybody's ever been there, that's where it was called the Crossroads College, and that was home. In the Simba Room campaign, which we're just about to kick off fairly soon, the inn and the brewery where you guys live, that's kind of your safe base. Yeah. So so you have all these things, and I I quite like the idea of introducing something over and above the ship. So you keep the ship stats and the ship mechanics as they are, but over and above that you have another uh, a community or a place to call home that you then run these kind of stats around. And yeah, and that's really interesting because if you can fault Traveller, and I'm sure you can fault it in all sorts of ways, but one <laughs> of the biggest faults is it's a real murder hobo game, isn't it? You, uh, the, the system of Traveller encourages you to fleece the locals for as much money as you can get. Uh, if you get into conflict, you shoot somebody in a high law level world, and all you say is, Right, we better get off planet fast and never come back, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and keep one step ahead of the law. Yes, yeah. And so, traveler, and again, traveler with its thousands, if not millions, of systems and planets, you can do that forever. There's, there's no need, no, nothing to call you to a place apart from the story that the GM and potentially players, uh, if they're feeling cooperative, might create to ever bring you back to a site where you've already. Um, got an incredibly bad reputation yeah whereas the idea of some sort of home base especially in the tight-knit community of coriolis of you know just these 30 odd systems i think that is quite attractive so we might be onto something there yeah okay well and it might be again be another way of binding the team together yes and just one other thought i had actually as well you know we we've got the the nemesis feature and i wonder whether potentially that might have a value uh in a way that might be something you can do do we pay off our nemesis that might have some sort of connection to your to your haven possibly yeah this 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 walks into the discussion that we had a little bit a while ago about reputation and yeah. reputation being uh, such a sort of static and one size fits all statistic when actually your reputation would be different with different factions Yes. Maybe that's something we should come back to at a different, uh, another time, because I'm conscious we've run on. For once, I'm the one worrying about the time, because we're running on quite a bit here. Um, clearly. So, well, it's been an interesting discussion, but yeah, it has. Let's, let, let's leave it as things that we can talk about. I'm really eager, though, to hear about something that you did. Uh, kind of, we've just been talking about, you know, making up some house rules. You had, I think, quite a house ruling session uh, a, a few weeks ago that you you told us you were doing last time we had our discussion program in episode eight, and that yep. is to recreate the fabulous scenario that you did for us as when we were teenagers, <laughs> based on the movie of John Carpenter's The Thing. As I've said before, John Carpenter's 1982 movie The Thing is probably one of my favourite movies of all time, and. This scenario is a complete homage to uh, to that movie. 
and I've I've titled it Tango Tango eighty two, which is the, the the name I've given the base in Antarctica, and and this is for between eight to ten players. Although you could possibly manage oh, wow. it with seven. Well, I think you need that in order to get the right level of suspicion and paranoia going. If you have too few, it's yeah, it kind of <clears throat> runs the risk of very quickly hitting a, a buffer or a cul-de-sac or not running in the way you want it. And the thing that I I think that's really good about the game uh, in the way that we run it is it, it does bring about all this suspicion and paranoia. It, it is completely 100% player versus player. Although, you know, the players have to work out which other characters they can trust or not trust. And the thing that I really like about it is that unless a player is killed, if you know, if a thing attacks and assimilates another player, that, that player isn't out of the game. They then play on as uh, as a thing themselves, which which is good because then uh, you know, a game like this could easily have somebody killed early on and then, you know, they have to sit through three hours of, of game where they've got nothing to do. So what did I do to prepare for the game? Well, I wanted to use Mutant Year Zero and the Coriolis rules, but I made a few quite minor adjustments, really. I, I based the game on the core Mutant Year Zero rules, but I changed the damage and stress rules to reflect Coriolis. So you didn't take damage to each of your four stats, which is what you do in Mutant, but you combine the two physical and the two mental to get your damage and your stress score. So I did that which I thought was a better way of doing it for this. I used the water and food mechanics that you have in Mutant Year Zero. So if you don't eat or if you don't drink, you start to suffer the, the effects of, uh, of, of, of that. All right, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Which I think, yeah, is, is important in a game like this that, I mean, quite often won't run for very many days, but it could, in theory, run for a while in terms of game time and... You know, a, a tactic for the alien, for the thing, could be to, to contaminate the food with some of its cells. And if you eat some of the food, then that'll turn you into a thing from the inside out. <laughs> so so the food uh, and the water is, is, is an important element to it, although it didn't really feature in the game that we ran the other week. A few talents uh, I, I took to work differently. So I, I chose talents quite freely from both Mutant Year Zero and Coriolis. Some of them applied in the way that the rules in those books would state. Some of them I just changed them a little bit. I added a couple of new talents and a couple of new skills. One in particular, a skill that I called Scavenger. So what I wanted to do was present the the players with the setting, with the map, with the inventory of all the equipment they've got there. But I didn't want to run it. I didn't want to put myself in a position of having to have thought of absolutely bloody everything you'd have on an Arctic, an Antarctic base. So I gave quite long lists of inventory. I didn't add flamethrower, which was the mistake that I made <laughs> in the game 30 years ago because people went, hmm, flamethrower, why have I got that skill? I'm going to go and get a flamethrower. Yes. So the scavenger skill was to cater for situations where a player had a really, really innovative idea about something and they needed a particular bit of kit, but I hadn't thought to put it on the inventory. And they could right. then roll their dice and if they got a success... Ah, I found something that looks like what I was looking for. Or I could cobble together a flamethrower out of a, a can of um, aftershave mm. and a match or something like that. Something like that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I used pre-generated characters, obviously, with a bit of background to them and with all the information that was necessary on, on those pre-gens. And I added a random events table, partly because one of the players, when we were talking about running it, a guy called Rob, said to me before the game, why would I do anything? 
if I know this is happening. And why? What you know? He he played really well actually. He was the most paranoid and suspicious of the players in the game. And it got me thinking that well, actually, yeah, I need to throw in things that would happen on a day to day basis in in a base like this. So equipment's going to go wrong. Something's going to fail. You've got to fix something electrical, or you know, there could be a little fire somewhere maybe, or yeah, a range of stuff. So I added a, a list of random events that the GM could then roll on in order to spice things up a little bit so they've got things that they have to actually do whilst they are trying to stay alive. So that was the basic the the, the setup. Mm. And for for information, I'm putting all this all of this stuff up on rpggods.org, hopefully in PDF form if I can work out how to do it technically. So if anybody feels the urge to run this for themselves and their own group of players, feel free get in there, take anything and everything you want off the off the blog site and, and run it. I would love people to run it. I'd love to hear what people's experiences were. So all that will be up there on the blog site, hopefully by the time that this podcast goes out. For running the game, there are a number of key moments to make the game run well. Firstly, you need to start up the scenario. So there's there's an initial scene, which replicates the initial scene of the movie to some degree, which basically delivers the alien, delivers the thing that's uh, hiding either within a human or within a dog to the base and then the second key moment is the first night once um, everyone's gone to sleep doesn't realize there's something bad going on and that's when one of the players becomes the thing so i randomly rolled secretly who was the thing and then i took each player out of the room for 90 seconds exactly just so we couldn't get any hint of somebody might be the thing if they were out of the room longer than the others (laughs) to tell them whether they were the thing or not and how they'd been made the thing then the original thing is seen. So the thing that would either be in a dog or one of the Swedish pilots who were chasing the dogs, that then tries to assimilate something and the players find out about it and they see it and they fight it and they should kill it, uh, ideally. And then away you go. It's then up to the players. They now know that there is something on, on the base that can assimilate and mimic perfectly, imitate perfectly other creatures. And it's up to them to survive. And it's up to the thing player to, to turn the other ones into, into things as well. The way the game structure actually played out was the players would get things they wanted to do. So, for example, there was a, a, a mechanical failure in the radio equipment in one of the shacks that was outlying from the base. So they needed to go and fix that. There were some other things that they wanted to do. And so the players in the big room together all said, well, I'm going to go do this. And so they broke up into groups to do stuff. And then I would take them out of the room in their groups and then play through what happened whilst they were away, whilst the other players didn't know what was going on. And obviously some of those players might be things and they might try and assimilate other players during that process. (laughs) Um, And then they would all come back together, which would be in game time, maybe a few hours later. And then they would then catch up as players on what happened. And that worked really, really well. Obviously, I was the only one who had full visibility of what was happening, but it worked It worked brilliantly. So remind me, how many players did you have in for this? We had eight. We had eight, had eight on the day, yeah. So you reckon that's kind of the minimum number, you think, for a really good thing game? You could probably get away with seven, I think, but any less than seven. And you, you start to run the risk of the, the players identifying the player who is the thing really early on and killing him quickly. And suddenly your game your game is over before it started, really, then. Yeah, but did you get any sense of, um, the, you know, when you were out of the room, 
leaving potentially thing players uh, with with mortals any sense of frustration that they wanted to be back in the action that they were waiting for you to come back so they could make their attack or anything like that yeah i mean there the game does rely upon taking groups of players out of the main room so there are going to be groups of players who are kind of left to their own devices to talk about stuff mm. but not actually get the chance to do anything because i'm not there to 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 adjudicate but it wasn't too bad. I think you do need to keep those out-of-the-room GMing scenes quite quick and quite sharp and well-controlled. And as soon as they're finished, get back into the main room and get the other players involved. So it does run a little risk of players not being involved. I'm just wondering whether it might make a great uh, sort of convention game with more than one GM. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think that would be quite good. It could also make an excellent actual play as well mm. if you could record each as of those as long as you've got roving mics or whatever yeah and and mm. edit edit those scenes together so the people listening to the actual play would see the the situation evolving and they would know so there's for, so for example in the game we had um they all took blood samples of each other in order to test them um to see who was a thing or not but before they got around to testing them they all went off and did their own thing and uh, did their own thing. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> did their own. Did their own bit they, of. Ac- they did action. their own activities. You mean? Yeah, they, they did their own activities. Whilst they were doing those activities, Tony, who was the thing uh, at the start, then assimilated two of the other players. And I was, I was looking at a really interesting moment where they would all come back together. They would do the test on the blood that was old and not contaminated by being the thing. Mm. When actually two of them would pass the test their blood was uncontaminated that they'd taken earlier but actually they would be things and they 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 never got to that point unfortunately but that was building up to a really good moment where two (laughs) two of the things are going to sit there say yeah i'm not a thing you see you know the test the test worked and you know i'm fine there's also it's interesting about another key point is as the gm in this game being really kind of forgiving and helpful to the ideas that the players get about how they can test each other to see whether they're the thing or not. Mm. Because you d- you don't want necessarily just to let them do exactly the same as they did in the movie, because a lot of people have seen the movie, you do that, yeah. okay, it's a bit less interesting. So you might make that a test that doesn't work. But in the game, the guys came up with three or four really interesting different ideas about how to how to test or how to identify yourself as a as an alien one of them which i just mentioned came which which dean came up with was if you're about to be killed by a by an alien by a thing or you're about to be assimilated you you drive a knife through your hand and that might sound a bit strange but basically what it means is the alien the thing would then assimilate you and copy you perfectly mm. so it would then copy the wound through your hand and anybody when they came back if they had a knife wound to their hand it might no, indicate that they're a thing. A yeah. Lovely. So it was a really good idea. but it, And it went really well, the game did. The other thing that as a GM, you need to have contingency plans. So you need to think about, well, if they do find the right guy straight off and just slaughter him, how do you keep the game going? What do you do? Um, and there are other ways of doing it, uh, which I won't go into any depth now, but there is a bit of sort of fleet-footed sort of quick-stepping that the referee will need to do sometimes to make sure that the game rolls on. And it, it's it's a game that the GM has to be comfortable with flying by the seat of his pants. If you're not <laughs> if you're not comfortable making a quick decision 
you know, on the spur of the moment on uh, to try and keep the game running, then this wouldn't be the game to run for you. But otherwise, it can be so rewarding. It can be so much fun. Um, just to summarise what actually happened, Tony was the thing. He managed to assimilate two others who were just so unsuspicious. They went out. The three of them went out to repair something. Their, their die rolls were so bad that they f- failed to repair it. And I said, OK, you need a different bit of kit from the main storeroom. One of them went, oh, I'll go and get it. Off he ran, <laughs> leaving, leaving Tony with the other one, who he quickly assimilated. Uh, and then when Connor, who was the one who'd gone off, came back, the two of them assimilated him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was three of them done straight away. And then the other one that was really funny was Morgan was a thing. Tony had made Morgan a thing. And he was with Paul and Ed. And they were making Molotov cocktails to, 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 to kill the thing, obviously. Yeah. And Paul was getting really frustrated because his die rolls were really shit. And he pushed the die roll. And in Mutant, if you push a roll, any damage applies to your stat. And he pushed it so hard that he broke himself. <laughs> so he, he then kind of slumped on the floor, which allowed Morgan to immediately assimilate Ed, because Paul was out of it, and then assimilate Paul. <laughs> so it worked really well. Well, I wanted to ask actually about how do you feel the year zero dice mechanic worked with the game? You know, when we did it before, it was uh, called a Cthulhu. Yes. Do, do you think year zero works particularly well with stuff like that push? technique i think the the thing that's really good is it well again as, as the engine you know the, th- the thing about the engine that we like anyway is it's it's quite straightforward it's quite you feel like there's opportunities when you're rolling the dice because sometimes you can be rolling a lot of dice even though it doesn't always work out that way yeah i'm not i'm, I'm not sure uh if i run this ever again i'll probably use the same game mechanic i'll probably use this mutant year zero again but mm. i think the there might be a little bit of pre-education of the players about the consequences of doing things. Now, Paul was one of the guys in the Mutant Year Zero campaign, so he knew about being broken, but it obviously just didn't occur to him at the time. Mm. But also, the players, with the exception of Rob and Dean, who were the two the doctor and the scientist, everybody else was just so unsuspicious. Uh, there was a great moment in the in the kitchen at Paul's house where we played the game, where where Rob and Dean were testing some of the blood and they effectively acted it out. So Rob was <laughs> like, you stay over there, kick the blood over to me. And then when you're testing my blood, they sort of went round as far apart as they could from each other. Because uh, in the game, I'd said that if you're a thing, all you have to do to assimilate somebody is get close enough to them and go, and put your arms around them. Right. But it, worked, it just worked really well. And the guys seemed to really enjoy it. Although the things won, Poor Rob and poor Dean were both killed at the end. And humanity was destroyed. Hurrah! Good old <laughs> humanity. We knew yes. him well. <laughs> yes. But so, anyway, so all of that stuff will be up on the blog site for people to go to. I completely encourage people to go and use it and, and play the games themselves. In fact, I would love it if you did. Um, and fed back how you found it. Cause brilliant. I found these games really, really good fun. That's really good. Talking of flying by the seat of your pants, I felt a little bit that I was flying by my seat of my pants when you asked that instead of the Simba Room game we had planned, <laughs> I run yet again another emergency scenario of the Mukafar campaign. I haven't actually done one that's been properly scheduled yet. Do you realise that? <laughs> I know. Well, we're still, wait- <laughs> we're still waiting for the first one in November, aren't we? 
Yes. <laughs> but uh, this one I did actually have a little bit planned uh, in that uh, it's it was what I was intending to be the very first scenario, but it has become uh, the third adventure. And, and talking of humanity being destroyed, th- there was a danger that uh, your, your own humanity might get destroyed <laughs> as well. But we'll leave that till the end. I'll, I'll keep this quite short, but I think it's really interesting that I have taken... I think really since starting to play Fate, an attitude of not working out too much about the scenario in advance, Yeah. really just putting a situation in place, having a few stats to hand for potential encounters, but then winging it and flying by the seat of your pants in terms of reacting to what you guys did. And I think the Mukafire campaign, I'll be interested to hear what your point of view as a player but in that scenario, I really did just have a situation and then I let you guys work around it. There was a, a little bit at the beginning that I think is worth unpacking that was a slight challenge. But after that, it pretty much went where you guys where you guys took it without, without much uh, further planning. At the beginning, though, I did have an interesting moment, of course, in that I had said with the bottle episode uh, that is part of our actual play that that would happen that's something that we'd f- sort of fast forwarded to flash forward to for when you made your first uh, portal jump yeah and we had to kind of act out the uh, the getting the job and making that first portal jump first the job was tailored very much to andy's campaign uh, uh sorry andy's character oh, i've forgotten his name salem salem thank you very much yeah as a as an ex Zelosian, uh, the client was the uh, sister Almos, who's the highest ranking Zelosian on on Coriolis, and she had a rather embarrassing situation. She needed somebody discreet and somebody she felt she could trust, and Andy was that person. <laughs> discreet. Uh, <laughs> well, that's what she was hoping for, <laughs> and uh, so we 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 played a bit of a scene with Andy to sort of catch him up on the scenario and you and Tony were waiting uh, very patiently and restraining yourselves very well in not getting involved in the negotiations which I was very impressed with because I could <laughs> see you chomping at the bit to ask a few more questions <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> you, yeah, let Andy, was, you let Andy do the thing it was but difficult. of course then and this, I, this is something I wasn't expecting you then thought right well actually while Andy's doing that our characters can be doing something and I thought you were just going to let me go on to say, okay, you earned the portal jump. That adventure happened that we did last time. Guys, do you want do you want to tell Andy about your adventures? But no, you decided to go shopping instead. <laughs> and um, which was fine, except for the fact that then I thought after a while, because you guys were deliberating, you know, you'd got some money from the previous adventure. Quite rightly, you wanted to make a good value investment and you were deciding whether there was a particular weapon or a particular bit of um, protection that you wanted. Couldn't decide what to spend your money on. Yeah. And there was a moment then when I thought, hmm, this is going on long enough. You know, for Andy, this might be a bit boring, watching two other people go shopping. Um, <laughs> so by the seat of my pants, I had you make an observation role and uh, pointed out a couple of the gangsters, the syndicate uh, gang that you defeated last time hanging around watching you 
thoroughly expecting that just to be a little warning that maybe Coriolis wasn't a safe place and that you know you <laughs> might wrap up your shopping quickly get aboard the ship and start the adventure that I'd planned <laughs> but, oh no um, you didn't you didn't you didn't take account of my bloody mindedness did you I did not no <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to get into a conflict uh, with these guys which you did and I thought oh I can shut this down really quickly let's have a patrol of um of legionnaires walk by let's make it a big patrol so that you know uh, we we don't get involved in any sort of combat and um that didn't work either i think that <laughs> might be down to your bloody mind of this too <laughs> yeah i think so well by that point i had uh, checked him on the like the bounty li- bounty hunter license register and there was a bounty against him so i yeah. thought i was doing something totally legitimate at that point i thought that the legion guards should sod off and mind their own business but no yes although <laughs> as my description for Ijma Earth describes sometimes it isn't simply like a like a police warrant card then everybody will back off so no. that's a lesson you've learned as it was yes. in the end you persuaded the legion guards that it would be a good idea for them to arrest him and for them to claim the bounty and to let you guys off so I was a bit mean to you there but um, <laughs> I was kind of determined that <laughs> that we didn't go off on a whole adventure that I really hadn't planned at all <laughs> with the syndicate we'll, we'll return to the syndicate later on be, be reassured that um, <laughs> things will play out. In fact, I've got an even more evil campaign for my uh, evil idea for how the campaign might play out in that regard, but I won't share that with you. So then we got into the adventure properly, and I ought to say that between planning the scenario and selecting the system of Hamura and actually running it, of course, the guys at Freel again brought out the Hamura B supplement which talked yes. about the, the portal station at Hamura and that kind of changed what I was planning but it did give me very handily a whole bunch of new stats that I could use for some of the encounters you might make what did you think of Hamura B as a player um, arriving on the space station and, and the guys you met there I thought it was it was it was good I mean it was it's a nice it's a good location it's quite a large location so I'd kind of had in my mind originally that the portal stations would be quite small little outposts of customs outposts um but obviously the hammurabi or hammurabi however we want to pronounce it station is quite big and there's a lot going on there which is fine yeah it was it's a good it's a good location it's a good uh it's a good setting in which to to do stuff i hadn't quite realized again as a character i guess and certainly not as a as a player that things in the uh, tower and system were going so kind of so badly wrong that there was going to be such tight control over what was going on here but mm. getting through the Hammurabi station by having to agree to on our way out participate in the refugee humanitarian effort was fine it added a nice little dynamic about me having to then use my gearhead talent to create a secret stasis hold somewhere to allow us to get the person we were after out of the system once we'd got in. I hadn't realised it was going to be so difficult. Uh, but that worked really well, actually. I thought yeah, it's, well, uh, I, it's a I very good that. setting. I loved, I loved your inventiveness on, on creating that, that unit and you know being absolutely willing to bring the refugees out. I do think, actually, there is a bit of a... I, you know, as, as GM, I had a bit of an issue about, well, sometimes you read that the Terran system is a real emergency, that you've got the Legion and the Zalossians working together. And over on the other side of the uh, horizon, around Zalos, you know, those fleets are kind of pointing their guns at each other. And yeah. yet here they are working together against the threat in 
the, the Tau ancestor, which we don't really know what it is yet. And Although it did feel knows. very much, it did feel very much in the game that this was this was an ex- or the Tauran problem was an excuse for both the Legion and Zalos to to flex their muscles in this area and try and take a bit more dominance over the, this bit of space. Yes, and there, well, there was that bit. I, so I had already decided that there was some something going on. So uh, uh, to spoil the plot uh, of my campaign, I, I had uh, broadly speaking Zenithian factions using this as an opportunity to make a land grab on Hamura itself, which I'd called Paradise in my system, um, forgetting that the the primary planet of every system is it shares the same name as the system, but there we go. Well, I haven't followed that in any of my systems either, so when I've been rolling them up. Ah, right, well, okay then. I think that's These are enough. our own versions of the Third Horizon, so of we course. can call the planets what we damn well like. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> And um, blast your eyes if you don't like it. So th- that was that was part of the the thing I'd written already before the Hamura B supplement came out. But yeah. I do find the Hamura B supplement is kind of contradictory. And on one side, it says, well, pretty much all the trade has stopped because there's nothing coming out of Taos anymore. There's only military ships going in and out. But then it talks about this pirate who's who's plying her trade in the system. And I'm thinking, why the hell would any pirate? be plying a trade in the system when there is no trade and, <laughs> and there yet there's a whole bunch of military ships two huge fleets yeah so um we played that a little bit for laughs in terms of <laughs> that was your cover for, for going in there um, yeah that you were looking for her when actually you were looking for somebody else entirely different but she didn't make an appearance you have actually met her i will say that but you don't know that you've met her uh... so i'll leave you to work it out which 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 of the people you well i don't know whether you met her but anyway, uh, I think she I think we fully on the station. I was gonna say I think we fully suspected that she was on the station somewhere, and we'd probably inadvertently told her that <laughs> we were gonna be. Oh yes, yes, we're going. We're going after this bloody pirate bitch. <laughs> but uh, um, but the, for me, the the best bit was uh, you did a nice bit of detective work in terms of trying to source the person that you were meant to be retrieving from the planet. You worked out that. She hadn't been kidnapped, as the original assumption uh, was by the by the insurrectionists fighting against the land grab of the Zenithians, but was actually kind of um, participating in it, colluding with it, maybe even leading it. He'd worked all of that out. But um, then your plan for extraction was an interesting one. And <laughs> given that it was your idea to come up with a friend in every port, do you want to explain a bit about how you did that and what you were thinking at the time? Yeah, so our group, is that the group talent we've got? I guess it is, isn't it? Um, Friend in every port, which allows us once a scenario to invent a contact of some sort of one of ours that will be be faithful, be trustworthy, at least for that scenario, and will give us an in to to something. So I I came up with the idea that there would be local defence forces that were contractors who were working on behalf of the Legion or the Zelosians to try and rescue hostages who were being taken by the freedom fighters, and that one of these would be a contact of one of ours. And as it turned out, um, we came up with a, a woman called Alina Niazzi, I think it was, who was a old contact of Tony's characters, Salah, from Dabaran, and she was now leading a group of these mercenary contractors called the 
Black Sun Troop, did we call them? I, I think. think he called them Black Sun, yes. And have a look. She, Hold on. And she yeah. was our she was our primary contact to be able to find some information about people who've been taken hostage in order for us to try and track down the woman who we were sent to find. Uh, but that, although though the, initially it was information, of course, you did plan to use her in the extraction itself. We did. That um, uh, having having made contact with the insurrectionists and agreed with them that you would be taken unarmed and without any equipment to meet her. Blindfolded. You had the nice idea. You knocked together a little uh, subdermal transmitter that would act as a homing signal. Andy's character, uh, Salem, who has some Metakogi skills, then inserted uh, a couple of those, one into your skin and uh, one into Tony's Salah uh, skin, uh, which you could activate. Uh, we did <laughs> by, joke about how the activation happened, but that's probably not for our buttocks. <laughs> Um, and then you, you yes, everyone, we are five years old. She and the Black Sun security guys would fly up in their spaceship at the appointed moment and uh, pull you and your target out of what you imagine to be would turn out to be quite a combat. Yes, that isn't quite how it turned out, though, is it? <laughs> Having no. done all that planning, what you hadn't quite twigged is that. This the person you're meant to be pulling out is actually Sister Almas's lover, and when you said that Sister Almas wanted her to come home, she was very willing to come home with you without any opposition. Yeah, so we suddenly found ourselves in a position where uh, I think I just chucked out without any expectation of success, saying, "Look, we can, like, we can, we can smuggle you out and smuggle you back and get you back here in a week," and she said, "Yeah, okay," and we thought, <laughs> "Oh, fuck." Uh, the ship's are coming. And that was a genuine dice roll. You know, yeah. you'd use your manipulate there. You don't have very many dice in manipulate. How many no, do you have? Three, I think. Three. She had something like seven, <laughs> and you got pretty much three successes, I think, or two or three. Two, I, I think, think three, I got. Yeah. You? Without even prayer, and she got none. So um, yeah, I mean, she would. I, I'd already, you know, decided that she would be relatively well disposed to the idea, but. Um, but the dice dictated that she agreed, which caught everybody by surprise. <laughs> it did. Because what you hadn't planned was any sort of abort signal no. to give to the guys who were fly, flying in even as we spoke. Yes, who, who, who arrived 20 seconds later. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was brilliant. I mean, that was an excellent moment because that, that, her agreeing was such an unexpected surprise, which is, you know, in all intents and purposes, an excellent outcome. And we're like, OK, great. But then the the stuff that we'd put in train to make life easier for us is now going to screw us up completely. It was great. It was a great situation to be put in. And so we were lucky to get, just get away, I think. Yeah, and you did. Again, the dice were really working in your favour. Uh, so Yeah, that's true. Because that day I rolled so many sixes. Oh, well, except maybe... Well, well yeah, sixes were a very... <laughs> we'll come on to that. Sixes were a very important part of my character's experience that day. But I did roll a lot. Yeah, um, and so there were things like um, I, I think I should have spent a darkness point possibly on on getting the your grab vehicle to stall on starting to, to add a bit more to the tension. But actually, there was quite enough tension there as you were running to the grav uh, vehicle, or it wasn't a grav vehicle; it was a crawler. Um, yeah, with w- with your target and with a couple of her guards who had driven you in, 
and we're now going to make the escape. Uh, but, you know, there was one point when I thought, oh, she's going to be a bit suspicious about this. And so she, she said, these guys have followed you here. You've brought these guys upon us. And Tony rolled a number of sixes when he said, we know nothing about this. And he rolled so many sixes that he was entirely believable as well. Um, yeah. So she came with you. You delivered her back to Sister Almas back in Coriolis, uh, having smuggled her out of the system uh, with a bunch of other refugees in your secret um, stasis, stasis pod bed yep. that you'd created. And we finished the scenario about an hour early, didn't we? <laughs> we did, yeah, which is a... And we should have finished the scenario. A portent of potential doom. But one of the things that hadn't happened is you guys hadn't had enough fights and I'd stymied that fight with the gang at the beginning of the scenario. So I think you were feeling particularly keen that you got to hit somebody. We hadn't fired a shot or... No, we hadn't fired a shot or thrown a punch and we had an hour left and we're bounty hunters. We thought, well, why not just earn some easy money? Let's go and find a mark that we can bring in. But it wasn't just any mark. You wanted to rattle the, your um, your syndicate, syndicate again. As well. Yeah. So you were looking for somebody connected with him to wind him up. And I pulled out uh, a guy whose name I can't remember now. No, me neither. But he's he he's in the list of notable citizens of Coriolis, and I just saw him as a spice trader. You'd uh, you'd dock the ship because you were getting extra money for delivering this woman to Almas. You'd actually docked it. Uh, the ship on the spaceport that's right next to the spice plaza so this was going to be an easy hit again i was inventing all this on the fly so the location i used is actually uh, an archaeological location from from my phd uh, called the brandy <laughs> medizini in the roman city of portus cool and uh, we set that up that those were we think offices of spice traders so it, it felt that that might be the sort of place that, that uh, excellent yeah in. Nice. You very cleverly worked as a team to get rid of the um, the sort of lookout guard who was on the outside. Uh, and then you kicked the door down and uh, started shooting pretty much, didn't you? Yeah, yes. Only for me to be shot in the head. <laughs> Two guys <laughs> in the back office were shooting out at you. And I remember one of them hit you. And I've got to take a mea culpa here. There's something about we were playing at your house. I think your table must be quite narrow. It was very difficult for me to see around the the lovely Coriolis judges screen that um, okay. we got. So I was rolling most of, normally I roll my dice around the side of the screen, but it was kind of difficult to peer around that. And um, I didn't, I've been rolling most of these dice quite happily on my side of the screen. But I realized when a critical hit came up on you as a double six, <laughs> that this was not, this is not what we should be doing. And it was worse than that as well. You know, again, I wasn't, you know, for the D66 rolls, I was just using two dice and I was reading them right to left, not not worrying about, you know, having different coloured dice. And then I had to lift the screen up and show you what I've got. And yeah. um, it was your birthday. And uh, <laughs> yeah. 66, that's a headshot and instant that's death, isn't it? That's instant death, yes. Um, um, so, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that rolling two dice the same colour negates the roll, so you'd have to roll it again anyway. And notwithstanding rolling it in secret, because you should, should roll it in front, you know, in front of us all for that kind of roll, negates it anyway. I I got quite I got quite fed up at that point. Uh, well, it's a shock because Yaffa was dead. I wouldn't say you were fed up. I thought you'd you managed your emotion very well, but I think all of us around the table could see that 
this was not the perfect end to a scenario not quite <laughs> on your birthday but one that you'd you'd asked for as a birthday present in a way yeah almost yes absolutely <laughs> And uh, yeah, and as I say, you know, I felt actually then a bit guilty about how I'd done the dice roll. But we did have this problem and we talked about it at the time. Uh, you and I both feel that you should let the dice detect the game. We're not dice fudges by nature. No. In the end, at the time, we... We did rolled, fudge. Oh, I rolled another set of dice. Clearly two different colours this time and clearly in front of the screen. And we played through... It was towards the end of the combat, so... Uh, you you got a different critical hit uh, that knocked you out for a couple of rounds, but um, but didn't kill you. But yes. I think you know we both came away from that scenario not feeling very satisfied with how we'd handled that. Yeah, I think for me, one because you know the discussion we had after the sixty six roll with all the effort that we'd all put into getting these characters to where they are, it seems such a uh, such a a moment. To blow it all, it just that just didn't feel right at all. But then, as you say, I I was uncomfortable with uh, with re-rolling the dice because again, you know, if if you get killed like that, you get killed like that. And then maybe the story, maybe Yafet's story, is much more of a you know a footnote to Salah's story actually, because Salah has then spent all this time trying to find me, only for this ridiculous little fight to see me dead on the floor. But as it happened. As it happened, there is an entirely legitimate way uh, how I can rightly survive that. And I, in the shock of the moment, I'd kind of completely forgotten that my icon talent is the dancer's talent. And that allows me, once per scenario, to completely evade all damage from one attack. So, uh, in retrospect, I'm playing that fucking talent. <laughs> so, um, we have a perfectly legitimate way for Yafit to be alive. Excellent. Yeah. Now, of course, actually, we should have rolled that before any armor rolls. But I'm gonna, yeah. I'm yeah. gonna. Sorry, I'm just being distracted because I've just seen that the Forbidden Lands has gone live. Have you only just seen that? It came up on mine about twenty minutes ago. I uh, know. I, I I wasn't looking. <laughs> <laughs> so get out there, everybody! It's only twenty one days, days to run. Yeah, it, I think it'll do well. Yeah. So anyway, slight slight fudging of how that rule should have played because of course we'd 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 gone all the way through armor rolling and and stuff. Yeah. But I think that makes story wise a far better conclusion. And I do think in a way, what that does by the fact that we played it out and then we've done a little bit of retconning, it feels a lot to me like um, the guys from Pulp Fiction in that scene when uh, Samuel L. Jackson and um, uh, Vincent Vega are being shot at by the guy who suddenly bursts upon them out of the yes, bathroom yeah. and then they realise they haven't been hit. And I feel that that's probably how you your character felt. So a satisfactory ending. Yeah, and I think it works really well in terms of the narrative story. So I've been struggling with whether or not I should embrace the beast and the Nazarene sacrifice. My icon has saved me here and I am taking this as a sign that the the beast is with me, protecting me, and it deserves my uh, my loyalty and my uh, my prayers. So, in narrative terms, it works really, really well for Yafet's character. But talking about characters, you've got a little bit of background that's relevant to Tony's character, Salah, haven't you, Matthew? Yeah, and it was really prompted by you creating that friend in every port. I'd I'd had these thoughts before about how uh, Salah might fit in 
to the Dabram Latif, but I thought, given that opportunity, and I described this woman in a very fancy coat, that it was time to put down those thoughts on paper and uh, actually make it part of the world. So, um, yeah, let me tell you about that. I don't recall if Tony rolled it randomly or chose to come from De Baron, but I was very happy to let him. Of course, it was a slight problem when, later in character generation, Tony and Dave decided that their characters were twins, and Dave wanted his to have grown up on Carmeric. Obviously, separated at a young age, a picture of their childhood began to emerge. A poor family who sent one child away on an apprenticeship, or maybe sold him into slavery, depending on how you look at it. Maybe they genuinely thought he would have a better life, learning a trade, or maybe they needed money desperately enough to pay for medical care, or maybe just to pay off a debt. The other slight problem is that Tony chose the operative guardsman concept at the beginning of character generation. If he grew up poor on De Baron, would he have ended up a guardsman on Coriolis? I guess he might, but one policeman is much like another, so I suggested he become a De Baron Latif. This is what the Atlas Compendium has to say about them. The Latifs are the planetary police force that maintain law and order on De Baron, patrolling both the cities and the plains in fast, state-of-the-art gravcraft. Only the faction's secret tech can measure up to the vehicles of the Latifs. Much of the Latifs' resources go towards policing the plebeians, who are often immigrants from the systems along the De Baron circle. After the riots in Lotus a couple of cycles ago, the Latifs have been extra vigilant. There are rumours going around that agitators have arrived from the conglomerate. Like so much of what we read in Coriolis Fluff, this short passage is redolent with story possibilities. I see a class-ridden society where to be a native-born de Baron offers a life of privilege. Those Latifs dashing about on their advanced grav bikes, the passage only mentioned grav craft, but I saw bikes from the get-go, are native-born, rich enough to buy their commission and the tailored uniform coats that denote their rank. Though nominally in charge of every investigation, many of these high-ranking Latifs, known as flyers on the streets, prefer to spend their time racing their grav bikes and impressing members of the opposite sex. The actual work, especially currently with Zenithians sowing dissent among the plebeians, involves a lower class of Latif. Working undercover and out of uniform, Latifs like Tony's character, Salah, are often recruited from the immigrant plebeian stock that they police. Though the privileged Latifs rely upon them for intelligence, they generally don't trust their plebeian counterparts. Sometimes, though, a really effective partnership can occur, like the one between Salah and his privileged supervisor, Alina Niazi. Plebeian Latifs are not much liked on the streets either. Considered traitors to their class, their careers are short, unless they work hard to keep their cover intact, seek the protection of a patron in the De Baron underworld, or bring in such a big bust with enough media coverage that the high-ups are forced to offer a promotion. But transfers between plebeian and privileged Latif ranks are rare, and more likely to be demotioned to the streets for disgraced flyers. 
Training for the different types of Latif is very different too. Though both are trained at the Academ, the privileged ranks attend for three Coriolis cycles, like a college degree. They have free run of the campus, including palatial accommodation, servants and hundreds of acres of lush parkland. Seminars in ethics and morality are often missed in favour of grav bike races around the grounds, fencing matches and altitude trials. Grav bikes already seem pretty cool mechanically, with a plus two bonus in the core book, so in a seeking a way to make Latif Gravcraft second only to secret faction tech, I'd remove the 50 metre restriction that the ordinary grav bikes in the core book have. I even have half an idea about running a short campaign set at the Akadem, all about classroom rivalry and first love. The plebeian experience of the Akadem is very different. Though images of the rolling parks and impressive buildings feature heavily in local bulletin recruitment pieces, plebeian recruits are bussed in for short, intensive boot camps with lectures and physical education sessions held in windowless, possibly even underground, classrooms and gymnasia. They do get a passing out ceremony on the parade ground, but then they are stripped of their cadet uniforms and bussed back to the city. It's a long-standing tradition of the Latif that they do not supply their own clothes, and for the plebeians, any old street clothes will do. But the uniform of a flying Latif is a badge of honour and status. So privileged Latifs commission their clothes from specialised tailors. Their dress code is tight enough that when you see two privileged officers together, you'd assume their uniforms are exactly the same. Emerald green with swathes of gold braiding and embroidery. But get closer and you will see not just are they individually cut and tailored. The braiding and embroidery has individual flourishes as well. Each Latif will have at least two versions of the uniform, a silk chemise for formal wear and a heavy protective coat for patrols. In short, if you're looking to distinguish the two types of Latif with archetypes from popular culture, think Blade Runner's Deckard for the plebeians and Sir Harry Flashman for the privileged. I think both sorts of Latif would make great player characters. The plebeian can be created using the guardsman stroke woman subconcept as it is, but a couple of tweaks might make a better privileged Latif. For example, replace observation with pilot in the concept skills list, and I'm tempted to replace force with culture too, but I'll leave that up to you. And of course, the real cherry on the cake is in the gear section. Privileged Latifs get to swap out the advanced melee weapon for a Latif grav bike. I'm really pleased that you decided to put all that down, Matthew, because it really fleshes out Tony's character. And, you know, it's nice to see the way the game mechanics works to bring characters like Alina um, Niazi into that background and that context in a really good way. And I like it. The idea of the Latifs on their grav bikes just inevitably brought up a, an image of me of judges from Judge Dredd on their lawmasters. So that sounds quite fun. I wouldn't mind wouldn't mind playing one of those, although I'm not so sure I'm really up for playing Flashman. I'd probably rather play... play I'd probably rather <laughs> play De- have to be Flashman. No, I know. I'd probably rather be Deckard <laughs> than, than Flashman. Well, yeah, and I, 
I think that might be a popular thing. But I thought, given that description of the Latisse on their on their grab vehicles, uh, and generally the opulence of Dabaran, I thought this was one of the a typical of of I think a lot of the fluff, as we've said in Coriolis. There's always an opposite. There's a description of a thing, and then there's some part of the thing that's very different. Yeah. And I thought it was it'd be lovely to split the Latif force uh, along class lines. I think it works really, really well. And the idea that Sulla is a cross between Harrison Ford, Yafet, Cotto, Parker, Deckard kind of characters. <laughs> really cool, actually. I like yeah. that very much. So what's been happening in your campaign, Dave? Well, we've had one game uh, since the last time. And... This was one that I ran very similar to what you were talking about earlier, about just presenting a situation and seeing what the players made of it. And the situation that I presented them with was they they were going to a coral station that they thought was going to be derelict, having been beaten up by the Dark Wolf creatures in previous scenarios, on their way out of Zalos, because they're now ready to leave Zalos. But they've got so little money that they were going to go and try and loot or salvage, whatever you want to call it, some stuff from this coral station. But I set up the situation that on board the coral station were a load of prisoners that were were still alive because they would have been left in, in cells. One of these was a child of the catacomb. So if people think back to a couple of episodes ago where we talked about the witch smeller covenstead of Focas and the children who had communed with the icons, but some of them escaped and were fleeing... And one of the people in the prison cells here was uh, a child of the catacombs. And she was calling out for help telepathically to Morgan's character, to Ajit. But in there, in the cell with them, so it's one big holding cell, were a number of other people. So there were some Nekatra, some intelligences in there. There was a Skavara, and there were some teenage children, some boys and girls, and some men and some women. And Taisha, who was this child of the catacomb, was saying, there's a witch smeller in here. I don't know who he is, but there's a witch smeller in here and he's trying to kill me. He's going to kill me. So I presented them with a situation where they've got a child of the catacomb. They've got a bunch of uh, a bunch of suspects and one of them is a witch smeller. And I wanted to mm. see how they played it out. And they, they quite quickly identified that the Sigvara was working with them. So Dean's character, Osgar, is a mind reader. And he read the mind of the Skavara. Couldn't tell who was the witch smeller, but could tell that the Skavara was, was one of them, was, was working for him. And he made them an offer of kill this girl immediately and the witch smeller would guarantee their safe passage out of Zalos. Which, I think unsurprisingly, they've, they immediately rejected. So they had to go through a process of trying to identify who was the witch smeller. Now Valdez, the captain of the ship, as a lie detector. Uh, he was using that, but it still requires a manipulation role against the manipulation of the, the person who you're trying to detect the lie against. Obviously, the witch smeller is going to have a pretty high stat on that, and he failed to detect the witch smeller. So what skill was that? Was that a technology role or manipulation? Uh, um, that was a manipulation role, and the lie detector gives Valdez a bonus to his dice for that role. But Valdez had failed the role when he was testing the individual that was the witch smeller. And it turned out to be one of the teenage boys who was who was actually the witch smeller. And I, I made it one of the teenage boys to try and throw them off the scent a little bit um, so they wouldn't automatically assume it was one of the, one of the men or one of the adult women. And 
there was a there was a distraction when on board the coral station there were a number of what do we call them um alfara ilaka which translates into space cockroach and mm. these are creatures that were living on board and one of them attacked ajit who was providing them with cover and he he was nearly uh he was nearly broken but just to manage to survive it but in the commotion the the people they'd freed from the cell the ones they tested and had passed fled and that included de sam who was the witch smeller morgan's character right. then Ad- ajit because he was wounded was heading back to the ship and he saw da sam with a zelosian golem who was on his ship and also saw him being wrapped up by his animated armor so suddenly they had a golem and an animated armor witch smeller to deal with luckily enough an 8-bit had remained on board the spectral corsair and did an emergency uh, undocking and in doing so pulled away part of the side of the coral station sucking them into space uh, so they managed to escape it was a good opportunity because morgan who plays agit has gone back to university so won't be with us for a few weeks mm. so he he has now agreed to go with the child of the catacomb to try and get her somewhere safe and they all managed to escape the coral station. And then somehow, they don't know how, but uh, the, the child of the catacomb was able to influence the portal station. They were waved through the portal into Mira. So they've now all arrived at Samar's Hammam, with the exception of Ajit, who's gone with Taisha, the child of the catacomb, in her ship Black Griffin. And they have now got a chance for a bit of rest and recuperation in Mira. Mm. And that's where, we, that's where we've left it. Oh, I like Mirans, and you'll have to introduce them to the um, Order of the Weeping Matriarch when they hit Mirror as well. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm I'm going to try and change the, the the feel and the pace a bit and do a little bit off off ship for a while. They've been on the ship a lot, haven't they? They have, they have. So there's a few things here that will unravel a little bit. Um, there's some stuff that's playing on in the background, which I haven't referred to in any of these updates because it would give potentially give stuff away, which I don't want to give away to the players. But there's there's more to come. But changing the pace a little bit, I think, for the next couple of scenarios. Excellent. Cool. Well, we have rattled on for a very long time today. I hope our our listeners don't mind a particularly bumper bumper episode for our tenth podcast. It's our tenth anniversary bumper episode. Everybody will be chuffed to hear us rabbiting on for so long. I've just got one thing to add. I thought we hadn't got any feedback, but I do remember our old. Um, correspondent ben asking us whether we had a different way of doing initiative having listened to the to the actual podcast uh, the actual play okay and i just wanted to say no we're, we're doing it as normal it may be that i did ask you guys to roll twice in one combat for initiative but that'll only be because i forgot i'd already asked uh, i haven't actually listened but he he thought we were, we were rolling every turn and I just wanted to... Oh, okay. No, I hadn't noticed that, yeah. I also find... I don't know why. I've got a, a unreasonable dislike of drawing cards for initiative. Oh, yeah. That came across in our recent scenario. I much prefer to roll the dice. I don't know why. I just... Cards just... I don't know. It just feels... It doesn't feel less random. It just feels... I don't know, like I've got less control because I'm, yeah. I'm, pick, I'm picking the next card. I don't even have any... I can't even do a special flick of the wrist to try and make my dice <laughs> land on a six. 
you know, maybe I should just cut imagine the deck what, next have, time. what would what would that critical have been like if you'd drawn a card that said sixty six? Eh? <laughs> that card would have been burned there and then. <laughs> Well, as right. you say, we've been going on long enough. Yes. Uh, this is a bumper episode, but I hope we haven't bored our listeners. If you have, if you feel we're doing too many campaign updates or our campaign updates are too long, then do tell, tell us. us. Yeah, let us know. Uh, but uh, apart from that, we look forward to meeting those of you that can come to Dragon Meet. And Absolutely. Before we do Dragon Meet, there might even be another episode of the Coriolis Effect. Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. We've got we've got two months yet. So uh, two months, excellent. At least yeah. two episodes of the Coriolis Effect before Dragon absolutely, Meet. indeed. Uh, but this one comes to its close. Unless there's anything else you want to say, Dave. No, I think we've probably said enough for one day. So thanks to everyone for listening again. Um, we look forward to your feedback. Thanks, Matthew, for everything. And goodbye, everyone. And may the icons bless your adventures. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric. <laughs>